So as I've mentioned before, I grew up in a pretty conservative Baptist church. And, you know, as much as I like to poke fun at them for some of their odd things that they considered rules, let's call it their legalism, um, you know, as I look back, there were a lot of things that they did really well. Um, and, you know, I think the thing that stands out to me the most is their focus on missions. Um, you know, and to be fair, a lot of churches support missionaries, right? A lot of churches have missions conferences, but this church that I grew up in, they, they not only supported a lot of missionaries, but they also sent a lot of missionaries. Um, and I can distinctly remember many times where people just like you and me were in the pews listening to sermons over the course of the time that I went there. And I, I remember situations where they decided to sell everything they had and move overseas. And it always seemed really weird to me because, you know, as a kid, obviously I'm looking through kid lenses. Now I know it's not weird. But as a kid, it was like, yeah, I, I kind of just figured missionaries were born that way or, you know, you, you just decide, you know, a campfire and, you know, when you were at camp as a kid and you just decided, hey, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a missionary. Instead of going to the university, you just went to seminary or you went to some theological school and, you know, the rest is history. I guess that's what I assume. But, you know, that's not how this went down. Like these were friends of mine in youth group and you know they'd come one day we'd be playing every day and then one day they'd come and they say hey um we're moving to argentina and i'm like where in the world is argentina you know it's like i didn't i didn't understand it i mean these were just normal kids their friends their dads worked at state farm selling insurance i mean this is like it's just and i, I didn't even think this happened and and here's the thing i'm not talking about just one family if it was one family i probably wouldn't even bring it up but I'm talking family after family after family heard preaching and said, you know what? I got to take that message somewhere that's never heard it before. And so, you know, it's funny because I don't remember much. I don't know if I blocked it out. I don't remember much of that church growing up in. I don't remember many names from that church. But I can picture in my head the prayer cards of these missionaries that were on my refrigerator. All right, there was, I, ha, I went online to see if they were still on the field. All right, so there was the Kriegers who went to Chile. Kriegers are in the top right. This is a current picture. All right, the Spodos who went to Italy, top left. I couldn't find the Purcells. They went to Africa. The Barlows went to Colombia. And Leon Fisher at the bottom went to Russia. Like I can picture their missionary cards. I, you know, I know their names. I know their kids' names because it was just so, like it just, it was so mind blowing to me that that's what happened. Like I, honestly, at one point in my childhood, I was probably like eight or nine. I used to dread missions conferences because I was afraid that my parents were going to up and move the family to Africa because <laughs> all these people in our church just were moving, and I was going to have to quit playing baseball and learn how to play soccer or something, you know, and it's like nobody wants to do that. So, you know, I remember, I just remember thinking why. Why would somebody do that? What would possess a perfectly normal family to sell everything they have and move overseas to follow Jesus? Like it seems so radical, but the truth is, it's really not that radical. Like even listening to it, you probably thought it was radical. Wow. It's actually kind of normal. Like if you look at it through the lenses of the gospel, you look at it through the lenses of Christ, would Christ call that normal? Or would Christ call that radical? 
Well, they're going to sell everything and move overseas. Oh, I can see Jesus now. That is so radical. You know? <laughs> I mean, Jesus probably thinks that's just normal. In Luke chapter 18, there's a story of this man who comes to Jesus. They call him the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, obviously Jesus knows where this is going. Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he, he actually lists all the commandments. And the young man says, I've already done all those, which obviously, and so he just bore false, false witness by lying, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. So Jesus says, okay, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, I realize the root of that passage is dealing with the man's heart. He was trusting in his riches to save him, as opposed to trusting in Jesus. But you have to admit, it's pretty easy for us to assume that verse is for somebody else. Would you agree? I haven't met too many people, myself included, who read that verse and thought, oh, I guess Jesus means I should go sell everything and follow him. Right? I mean... We read it. We've all read it. You heard it just now. And even in your mind, you're like, mm, that's not for me. <laughs> Jesus doesn't mean that for me. It's probably someone in this room, but, but not for me. And one of the things I love about Acacia Grove, which was one of the two churches that came together to form Creekside Church, is from the very beginning, they were open-handed with their finances. I remember having a conversation with a few of my friends who helped start Creek, or not Creekside, but Acacia Grove. Um, guys like Sam Marcinick, Jesse Hoover, Phil Reynolds. And I remember from the very beginning, one of the things that struck me is that even when they first started meeting, they were actively trying to identify needs inside their little church family and meet those needs. Monetary, physical needs. I mean, the church probably had two to three dozen people and Sam was already talking about getting rid of his 401k. Like, I'm like, really? Like, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I'm, so I'm trying, of course I'm trying to explain that text away and I'm like, Okay, well, see, now they were farmers, and so, you know, they, I'm not a farmer, so at 65, I have to, you know, I'm like explaining to him why I need a 401k, and me and Sam have this long discussion, and it's neither here nor there. But here's the deal. While, while that kind of stuff may sound extreme to us today, through the early church, it was normal. Like, it, it just was. Today, as we dive into Acts chapter 4, you're going to see that reality played out. Like, Peter and John have been arrested for healing a man on the Sabbath. They had to give a defense for their actions. So they went in front of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was this council of 70 men. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, kind of half and half. And then the one, the high priest, was kind of that tiebreaker vote because, you know, kind of like politics today, nobody got along and it was always going to be straight down the middle. So you had the high priest who was kind of the, the tiebreaker vote. And eventually they were released. Peter and John were released. They came back to their church family. And when they returned, as we heard last week, they prayed for boldness. I don't know if at some point during that interaction with the Sanhedrin, they started feeling a little nervous. I don't know if we can do this anymore. I mean, this was pretty intimidating. These are the same guys who crucified Jesus, not even, you know, two months before. And so they came back, they talked to the little gathering of believers. And they said, okay, we have to pray for boldness. And I think it's really interesting that the way God answers their prayer is to give them more of the Holy Spirit. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Lord, help me to be bold. And he says, here's more of my spirit. Help me to love people. Okay, here's more of my spirit. 
Like if we're walking with the Lord and we're in tune with him, so many of our prayers are answered by more of him. Like I need to be more disciplined. Okay, here's more of me. Like I need to do this. Okay, here's more of me. I want to be, a, I want to pray more. I want to do this. I want to do that. Okay, just lean in to me. Right? And it, it seems to be a common theme. Every time you read Acts, everything we've seen so far, people are praying. The Holy Spirit is moving. People are praying. It's always in that order. People are praying. The Holy Spirit is moving. Like, I, you know, I almost think of it like, don't expect the Lord to work in your life if you're not praying. Because it's, it's almost like always one after the other. Now, I'm not saying he won't work or can't work because he does and he can't. Thank the Lord he rescued me when I wasn't praying. Thank the Lord he rescued me when I wasn't seeking him. So he clearly works like that. But in a lot of cases, he works as you are seeking him. Like you are reaching out to him. You are, you know, you're seeking him and then he is moving in your life. And we saw it firsthand. Acts 4.31. This is the last verse we read last week. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And it's such an important idea because in our passage today, we get this little glimpse inside the early church. You know, most of these first four chapters of Acts, we've kind of seen what's going on in the peripheral. But today we get a first-hand snapshot inside the early church. And here's what we see. We see unity. We see togetherness. We see people being like-minded. We see generosity like you've really never seen before. And there are a lot of things that take a whole lot of Jesus. Like when you read this passage today, you are not going to think to yourself, oh, that is easy. I can do that on my own life. You're going to think the only way that that is going to happen in my life is if I am spirit-filled and have a whole lot of Jesus. Because it's hard. Like what we're going to read about today is kind of, you know, it just changes the way we often think about how the church interacts. All right, let's go. Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that anything... Any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So this is a rhetorical question. But what's the first thing that comes to your mind after hearing that? Be honest. God knows what came to your mind, so be honest. Does it sound appealing? Colin's already shaking his head no. Does it sound appealing? Messy? Difficult? All the above? Do you think we, as Creekside Church, should strive for that? Do you think those verses apply to us today? And the, here's the reality. The reality is it speaks to so much more than money. I mean, we're Americans. So when I read that, you heard, okay, I got to give up that money. And okay, sell that, do that. I mean, it is so much more than money. Listen to what Luke says. They were of one heart and soul. Unity. They were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common, not a needy person among them. I almost look at it like a, a spiritual progression, right? And so they were filled, they prayed, they were filled with the spirit. 
And because they were filled with the Spirit, they were of one heart and one soul. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and everybody in this church is just pursuing God, there's one mission, you're you know, one soul, one mind, then the gospel is your focus, period. And because of that, God's love is present. Like, it's just, it's a, it just happens. Like, God's love is present. So someone's like, no, no, nobody said that anything was their own. So they had everything in common. Because nothing was their own, and as a result, there was not a needy person among them. Like, I feel like it's just this progression. And here's the thing. Before you think it's too often left field, it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. It's what he described in the upper room. In the upper room, John 13 through John 17, Jesus gives this upper room discourse to his disciples. All right, John 13, he comes in, he washes his disciples' feet, and he says, I give you a new commandment. A new commandment to love one another. Then John 14, John 15, John 16, he explains the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be able to do that on your own. So I'm going to have to give you the Holy Spirit. My presence, my spirit is going to be in you to help you do what I just told you you needed to do. Because that's the only way you're going to be able to love people like I love people is if I'm in you. Like I am working in your life. So John 13, you see something that says, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And laying down your life, when you hear that, I think so much, so many of us automatically think death. You're laying down your life. But would you agree that you can lay down your life for someone and not die. Like it's, parents do it all the time. You lay down your life for your kids. If they need something, you're there. Doesn't matter if you've got to drive 500 miles, 200 miles, doesn't matter what you got to do. If they need monetary help and you can help them, you help them. Like we, we do that, we lay down. And so Jesus is looking at the disciples, he says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his family. Does it say that? No, for his friends. Like he's, Jesus is making it go further than the family unit. And then they finish this upper room discourse. They start walking to the garden of Gethsemane right before the cross. And in John 17, you have the holiest prayer in all of scripture. Jesus is looking to heaven. I can only imagine he's praying, walking to the garden, most likely the garden of Gethsemane. And he prays this prayer. And one of the verses in there, or two of the verses in there, John 17, 22, here's what he says. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Why is unity important? Because then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So fast forward six months, and what do we see? We see love, and we see generosity, and we see unity. And it's, it's really pretty remarkable if you think about the people who are in this early church. Like the, the group of people that is assembled. All right, this is an extremely diverse group of people. All right, Luke says in Acts 2, there were people from every nation under heaven that were there in town for Pentecost. When, when all of a sudden Peter preached that sermon at Pentecost, what did it say? 5,000 people gave their life. Was it 3,000, 5,000? Doesn't matter. A lot of people gave their life to Christ, and all of a sudden they stayed. Right? So this church is made up at this point of probably 15,000 people. And we're not just talking about a bunch of people who have wealth. 
or a bunch of people who don't have very much. Like you're selling things and giving them to people who are nothing like you. In some cases, people you hated a couple weeks earlier. Talking Jews, Romans, I mean, oh, they need something? Here you go, let me sell this land. We're talking different races, we're talking different customs. They would have spoken different languages. And we know that because the first thing the Holy Spirit does when Peter preaches at Pentecost is everybody was hearing him in their own language. So there was, you know, there was language barriers there. And now you expect me to sell my house and get something way smaller, something that might not even be, that I can even depend on, so that family has somewhere to live. Is, is that what you're saying? Like, obviously, you don't know how hard I've worked for this. Obviously, you don't know how much I've sacrificed for this house. I don't even know if those people are hard workers. What if they're lazy? Doesn't the Bible say if you don't, if you don't work, you don't eat? Like, I mean, I, I'm just trying to picture what it would have been like if we had that, like, we were having this conversation. Like, that, that's the reality. This is a conversation they could have been having, but it didn't. Because they viewed the church as their family. That body of believers was their family. Chances are, for most of you, you love your family. And when you see them in need, you do whatever you can to help them out. Would you agree? Do whatever you can to help them out. All right, and I'm not so sure, I'm not judging, I'm just saying, I'm not so sure this is the reality. I'm not sure we view the church the same way. I'm not so sure we view the people around us. We, we, we say we view them as family, but when push comes to shove, do we really view them as family? Because that's, that's what's happening here. Like up here, we get it. The Bible says it. We believe it. But practically speaking, how does it flesh out in our lives? Like, I don't want to make this, you know, I'm more of a blunt, say it how it is, don't waste my time, just give it to me, like, tell me what I need to do, right? That's just kind of the way I'm wired. If I'm listening to a sermon, I'd rather somebody just punch me in the gut than sugarcoat it, all right? That's just, that's just how I am. So, like, it's not complicated. I don't want to overanalyze it. If you, if you see a brother or sister in need and you have resources, do something about it. Like James says it, James says it in James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Generosity is one of those things that's really easy to understand, but it's very difficult to apply. Like the reality is we don't need a, you don't need a better explanation of the concept, right? We just need to do it. Like I could explain it to you in 10 different ways to Friday, but we all know it, me included. I'm preaching to myself, just so you know that. Like I struggle with this stuff all week, kind of going back and forth and back and forth. And you know, here's the thing about Creekside Church. Here's what I love. I think for most of you in here, if not all of you in here, if you knew the needs of the people sitting next to you in these chairs, you would meet them. I really do. I, I couldn't say that about all churches. I really have no doubt that if you knew of the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ in here, you would do something about it. I, I believe that. And I think we're, you just don't know what it is. And I think we're gonna help you get better at that, hopefully, because that's what families do. And it's not just physical needs, because some of y'all are sitting here like, you haven't seen my checkbook lately? 
I'm glad you're not talking to me because I couldn't help someone with a physical need if my life depended on it right now because I ain't got nothing to help with. So, you know, I'll, I'll come back to your sermon 10 years from now when, I, you know, when I'm a little better positioned in life. So how about emotional needs and, and uh, spiritual needs? Luke said there wasn't a needy person among them. You guys know anyone that's needy? Some of y'all are laughing. Don't mean that kind of needy. <laughs> but there are emotional needs, there are spiritual needs, and there are physical needs. One of the best things you can do as a member of the body of Christ is to meet emotional needs and spiritual needs. You may not have a lot of resources to help people financially. But you can give wisdom, you can give guidance, you can give encouragement, and you can give love. It's free. And I, I want that to be a part of our DNA. I want that to be a part of who we are, what we do. We look for physical needs if we can meet them. We look for emotional needs. We look for spiritual needs because that's just, that's just who we are. All right, verse 36. Now we hit the second half of the story. Then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So in this little section, we're introduced to this guy named Joseph. Obviously, Luke likes Joseph. He's mentioned, or yeah, because he's mentioned 23 times throughout the book of Acts. Religiously speaking, he's a Levite, all right, from the tribe of Levi. Nationally, he was a foreigner. He wasn't from Jerusalem. It says he was from Cyprus. Okay, and his nickname was Barnabas. That's what they called him. That's what you hear about him later in Acts. Luke has this way of kind of introducing you to somebody, and then he kind of pulls back away from it. You don't know anything about him. You think that's the end of it. And then boom, 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 boom. You get a lot more. So this is one of those times where we're just going to get like a little introduction. The story shifts. And then we're going to hear a lot more about Barnabas throughout the, throughout the book. Apparently he was so encouraging that they quit calling him Joseph. And they started calling him Barnabas. Which has been son of encouragement. I wonder what your nickname would be if people started calling you what you were. Like if the, if the, this is going to sound bad. That's why I don't do rabbit trails. Um, like, it's just so awesome. He was called, like, he was such an encouraging guy that they didn't even call him by his first name anymore. They just said, son of encourager, Barnabas. Forget Joseph. We're not going to call him Joseph anymore. We're going to call him Barnabas. Like the church needs people like Barnabas. And I'm curious, like, I'm just, I'm thinking of that this week. I'm like, man, I wonder what my nickname would be. Like, I wonder if it would be a good name or a bad name. Like, you're just the, like, what would people call you? If people looked at you and looked at who you were and looked at what you, know, what you did in the church and what you brought to the table, would they be like, oh, son of something. <laughs> that was not supposed to go down that path. Let's move on. Um, Barnabas gets it. People love him. People care about him. So they call him Barnabas. He gives this land, brings it to the disciples' feet. Now we meet somebody else on the other side of the coin. Luke flips it and shares something else. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds on the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether or not you sold this land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So what just happened? I mean, every single thing we have read so far in the book of Acts has been amazing, right? It's been super encouraging. And now we get to a story about a man named Ananias, sells some property, keeps a little something for himself, lies about it, and gets struck down. And what's, what's interesting is, if you're anything like me, when, you know, when I first read that, I, I was honestly a little, a little appalled. I was like, really, Lord? You're going to strike them down for lying? And then I, then I kind of caught myself, and I was like, that probably says more about my view of sin than anything else. <coughs> but I think even a little tiny lie is not offensive to God. But that, that's what happened, right? Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. So first and foremost, here's the thing. It says, why has Satan filled your heart? So he was walking in sin as opposed to the Lord. The Holy Spirit, instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to fill him, Ananias is allowing Satan to control his heart. All right, verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So it had nothing to do with the fact of whether or not they sold the property. They didn't have to sell it. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? They didn't have to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So when the property was sold, it didn't really matter how much they gave to the church. It was at their disposal. So what's the problem, right? The issue is, and we're gonna unwrap this, but the issue is they tried to gain a reputation for generosity, when in reality, they weren't generous. And that sounds, odd, but it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of a deeper issue. Ananias and Sapphira were killed for being hypocrites. For trying to deceive, for lying to the church. And since the church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then they were really, in a sense, trying to deceive God and they died for it. Like, you know, and we're going to, we're going to, break this down a little, but they saw, this is how I imagine it went down. They see Barnabas sell this plot of land. He takes the money, he lays it at the apostles' feet, and everybody's like, oh, how amazing. Thank you for this gift. We can do so much with this gift. So many people can be helped with this gift. And I says, man, that was pretty amazing what just happened right there. I want to do that. So he attempts to go out and do the same thing, but he's not quite as spiritual, not quite as spiritually mature as Barnabas. Right, so asking God to give him a generous heart that walks open-handed, he's like, I don't really want to do that. I just, I want to get that applause, but I don't want to give all the money. Like, I want the glory of man instead of the glory of God. Like, you know, you can picture this battle. He's like, I'm just going to act like I gave more than I did. And you see, here's the deal. One of the issues, I think, that plagues the church, and I'm guilty of it, just like everybody else, 
is it's the desire to look more mature than we really are. Like it's the desire to look further along in our walk than we actually are. It's the desire to be praised like others when they're obeying the Lord, right? And essentially it's, it's hypocrisy. Like you always hear people say, I don't wanna to go to the church because it's full of hypocrites. And the reason they say that, at least when you talk to them and ask them, what do you mean it's full of hypocrites? Well, they're in church acting like they're holy, but then I see them out in the world doing this, right? I mean, that's what you hear. That's what people say. And we would all agree, oh yeah, I guess that is hypocritical. But in reality, if you kind of break it back down to us, it can, we can be just as guilty. Like that desire to look more holy than we really are. Like, why is it a big deal? Okay, why is hypocrisy a big deal? And it's a big deal because it flies in the face of the gospel. Like everything about hypocrisy flies in the face of the gospel. Because what? Guess what? We are sinners. We need God's grace. We need God's mercy. We don't have to be perfect. We don't. But we have to rely on him. And for some reason, sometimes we just think, you know, I don't really, I'm no longer a sinner like that. I don't really need grace. And we try to skip the heart change. We try to skip the work involved in discipline and pursuing God and studying his word and reading the Bible. Like, I don't really want to do all that. I just want to look holy. I just want to skip. So we go straight to behavior modification. I don't want to do what it takes to get rid of lust in my life. I'm just going to act like it's God. I don't want to do what it takes to get rid of this. I'm just going to act like it's not there anymore. And that, that's kind of, so Barnabas, or not Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to look holier than they really were. <clears throat> I don't want to act like I'm going to give all this money away. I'm really not going to do it. But I want to look like I did it. It's like the Pharisees, all right? Matthew 23, 27. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Then what does he say? Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. Hypocrisy just says, look, I'd rather pretend like I'm already there. I don't really want to do the work. I don't want to do the discipline. I just want to, I just want to be there. I just want to look holy. And here's the thing. Here's why that is an offense to God. is because you've almost forgotten who God is. You've forgotten that God is merciful and God is loving and God is forgiving and God cares about you. And he, he meets you where you are and he's the one that does all the work. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And if you've ever fallen as a believer, which I have, if you've ever been walking with the Lord and you're just like, all of a sudden you find yourself six months later in a place you never thought you'd be. And you repent of it. You're like, Lord, I don't even know what got me here, but I know I need you. It is in that work. All right, letting him work in your life, seeking him, asking him to fill you with his spirit, being disciplined, being in the word, walking with him through prayer. Like that's where that closeness comes. Am I right? I mean, that's where you grow. Some of the best growth periods of my life has been where I've fallen flat on my face. And then I turn around, I'm like, it's clear I can't do this on my own. It's like this lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We have a fancy name for it. We call it sanctification just becoming more and more like Christ. And here's the thing. I think one of the best ways to do it, one, personal discipline, spiritual disciplines. The Bible talks about them. Meditating on God's word, reading God's word, being in prayer, like all these spiritual fasting. We don't like to fast. Fasting is very biblical. Like there's these spiritual disciplines that draw you in closer to the Lord. But then on the other side of things, there's the relationships that we walk in. 
There's the people that we do life with. The church. That, that's how you fight hypocrisy. One, you're walking with the Lord and being disciplined and walking with Him. Two, you're walking with people who can call you out. Who can call you out. Like genuine relationships that point to our flaws. Like if Ananias looked at the church family, that church family in Acts that we read about, if Ananias looked at that church family and said, guys, there's something going on with my heart. I don't know what it is. I'm greedy. I want that money. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to sell this land that I own, but I don't know if I want to give it. Like, I don't know what that looks like. And for some reason, I have this desire to look holier than I really am. What do you think the early church would have done to him? Would they have kicked him out? No. Not at all. They would have been gracious and loving and caring. Like, that's what we read at the first part of the passage. They were of one mind. They were unified. They loved one another. They cared for one another. They embraced this idea of everybody being in this together. They were family. Like they already knew everybody's needs because they were open and honest and praying for each other. Like every time they met, people weren't embarrassed to share what they were struggling with because you battled sin together. That's what it means, one mind, one soul. Like you fought Satan as a family. You know why we do small groups? You know why we keep pushing these small groups? It's not so we can be legalistic and have like another little gathering for everybody. It's because we want to try and encourage life on life accountability. This right here is great, but this is not accountability. Like you don't, you don't walk with each other. You don't bear each other's burdens on Sunday morning. You can if you're intentional, but most of that is going to come through being in smaller groups praying together, studying God's word together. I mean, that's, that's where that comes. Like, I want you in these small groups to dump your physical needs, your spiritual needs, and your emotional needs into the lives of other people. Throw them out there. And I want the rest of the people in those small groups to pick them up and embrace them and help you walk through life. There will be a moment in everybody's life in this room where you're going to need somebody alongside of you. Period. If you're not in one now, you'll be in one soon. And I want somebody right there next to you to walk through it. Even the disciples at one point when they're walking with Jesus say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help our unbelief. All right. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. There should be at least one person in your life. This is a note to self. There should be at least one person in your life that knows everything about you. And, and, and your spouse should know everything about you. I'm talking guy, you should have a guy. Girl, you should have a girl. You should have one person that knows you inside and out. Like knows what you're thinking, knows what you're wrestling with, knows what you're struggling with. So you can pick up the phone and say, hey, I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like loving anybody today. I don't feel like being generous today. I don't feel like I'm going back into lust. All these things that are happening that they can be like, all right, let's go. Let's pray together. But we, we're such an individual, individualistic society. We still do that. And that's, that's what I would love to see change, right? There's Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I wonder if Ananias had somebody next to him that was walking with him if the story would have turned out differently. I don't know. 
these relationships, they don't come easy. You're going to go to that small group. You're going to be like, like two weeks in, you're going to be like, well, there's nobody here that's going to be that person. You don't know that. Every deep, abiding, long-term relationship I ever had, half the time I didn't even like the person very much the first time I met them. And then we fight together, we learn together, we grow together, we study God's word together, and God's like, and when I got a problem, I pick up the phone, and who am I calling? That person that I never thought would be that person. And sometimes they take years to get, a couple years for some of you, because you just don't open up. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You're never going to walk in victory over lust if you keep pretending you don't have an issue. You're never going to walk in a, you're never going to grow in your boldness to share the word if you act like you're bold when you know you're not. Like you're never going to develop this intimate prayer life if you keep pretending you have one. Like that's just, that's just the reality. And for some of you, you know, probably your, your first step, you're sitting here and you're like, I've been coming to church for a long time. Guess what? I've never even given my life to Jesus. So for some of you, your very first step is just to say, you know what? I have never committed my life to Christ. And I want to do that today. You know, deep down, you know you've never done it. And here's the beauty. The beauty is that God shows love and grace and mercy. We're all hypocrites. Literally. Like the marvel of this story. When I read this story, the most mind-blowing thing of the story is that he hasn't struck us all dead. Would you agree? Like God and his holiness and his, just his, how amazing he is. That's the beauty of the story. The story is that we're still here because of how merciful and loving and caring he really is. And I don't want you to leave here today without understanding it. Like we've all lied. We've all done things. We've all done the exact same things that Ananias and Sapphira have. Like we've all been hypocrites in some way, but Christ died for you and me. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. The guys can go ahead and start <coughs> handing that out. Um, but communion is a time for followers of Christ to reflect on the cross, to reflect on what Christ did, that he shed his blood for all of us and that his body was broken for us. And so as they hand out that bread and that juice, I want you just to take a few minutes and I want you to reflect on areas where the Holy Spirit has pressed on your heart because I know it happened. He's revealed areas in your life where you're not quite lining up with him. And I want you just to give that to him. He already knows it's there. I want you just to acknowledge it. Lord, help me. Like, I'm not as generous as I should be. Help me be generous. Maybe you're struggling with loving the people in your church family. Ask him to help you. You know, that's why the early church was praying for boldness. They were praying to be filled with the Spirit. They were praying for all these things because they knew they couldn't do it on their own. Maybe you're struggling with hypocrisy. We've all struggled with hypocrisy. Acting holier than you really are. Give that to the Lord. All right, let's take a few minutes, and then we'll come back and take communion. One of the passages we often read when taking communion is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's a really interesting context of this 
passage, because quite a few years had passed since the time of this early church in Acts. And Paul has been planting churches in Ephesus and Galatia and Corinth and Philippi and all these places that you read letters to. And so he's writing this letter to this church at Corinth and they had strayed from their love. They had strayed from their unity. And he's really writing to rebuke them because they were using this time of reflection and communion, dependence on the Lord. They were using this time just for their own gain. And so when I read this, we'll take communion when it's done, but when I read it, I'm gonna actually read the first part of the passage and then we'll, we'll roll right into the communion part. First Corinthians 11, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken, or which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake. I love passages like today. I mentioned earlier, I like, you know, I like sermons that kind of punch you in the gut. So passages like this are, they're tough. You know, they're, they're, they're real. They're convicting. But the reality is, I think we often don't, at least we leave here feeling like, okay, great passage. How, how do, what do I do about it? How do I apply? They're like, I want to be more generous, but what does that look like? What do I, what do I do? Like you're willing to help people out if you just knew of the need. And I know there are people in this congregation today who have financial needs. Like life has thrown you a curveball, and you have no idea how you're going to get out of it. Right? You've been crying to the Lord for help. Lord, I just need deliverance. I know financial needs seem so petty in your eyes, Lord, but Lord, you know what I need. So here's what we're going to do as a church. For the rest of the book of Acts, if you have a financial need, I want you to write it on a sheet of paper. On the other side of that paper, I want you to write your name. Okay? And I want you to pin it to that prayer board right back there in the back wall. No one's going to know who you are because your name's on the other side. And I just want you to pin it to that back wall. Electric bill, 150 bucks. No one will be able to see that it's there. They'll just read electric bill, 150 bucks. And there, there are a couple prerequisites to that. I don't want you to put a card up there unless you've been praying about it. Okay? Like, I, I, I want this to be something you've been seeking. And you can start praying today. And the next week, put the card up there. But you've been truly crying out to the Lord. And the second thing is, I don't want to see anybody's vacation up there. All right? I don't want to read anything up there that says, trip to Paris, five grand. Or, you know, Lamborghini car payment, $3,200. Like... This is, keep in mind the ramification of lying to the Lord. All right? I'm not saying we're going to do anything about it, but that's, that's his business. And then for those of you who say, you know what? 
I can meet that need. I want you to look at the needs back there and I want you to write out a check, Creekside Church, 150 bucks. And in the memo line, just write electric bill. That's all you gotta do. Put it in there. We'll have a couple, we'll have one elder, one deacon who will kind of grab all of those. We might even reach out to you if you put your name up there. Just, I mean, this money was laid at the, the apostles' feet and they distributed it to people who had need. So if you're gonna put a need up there, we may call you. We may meet with you just to see if we can help you, if we can pray with you, if there's other things that we can do. But as a church, I want to make sure needs are met. I don't want to to go through this whole study of Acts and read stories like this and read churches that met needs and then not do anything about it. I don't think we'd be good shepherds if that's what we did. And then if you say, look, I I don't know about the board, I don't know about needs, but I do want to help. Throughout this entire study of Acts, if you just write Acts in the memo line, we'll know that you want to meet needs. So if you write a check for 500 bucks and write the word Acts, and there's needs up there, we'll meet those needs with that check. Because I think it's really important for you to know, number one, that the Lord loves you, but that you can depend on your church family. And when you have a need, a legit need, that people can help you out. And maybe it's emotional needs. You don't have to put your name up there. Man, I'm, I'm going through this. I'm going through that. Walk over there and look at that need and say, I went through that too. I can help that person. Looking for somebody to disciple me. I can disciple somebody. Maybe I can meet that need. And then when it relates to outside the church, the other thing I want to do is I want, to, I want us to help people outside the church. Because it's really odd I think to people who don't follow Christ when the church is generous, like truly generous. I mean, you see a lot of people who are willing to give their time. You see a lot of people who are willing to give their talents, but it's, it's, it's few and far between the people that are actually willing to donate their money, right? It takes a lot of Jesus to give your money. And I'm not talking $20 salvation army at the end of the year. I'm not talking, you know, these, I'm talking giving until it hurts. I stay in hotels a lot for work. And every now and then, I sometimes I try to like avoid it. And like, Lord, don't tell me this. But every now and then, I'll be praying before I get up and go to a meeting or whatever. And the Lord will just impress on my heart. I want you to write a note to the maid who's going to clean your room. And I want you to bless her. And because you're like, really, Lord? No, I, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. So a few weeks ago, I'm at a hotel in Orlando. I wrote this lady a little note. I, don't, I had no idea who she was going to be. I mean, 99% of the time, I don't ever see them because leave it in the room, get my luggage and go. The point is not me. The point is them. The point is being obedient to the Holy Spirit, right? So I leave this little note and this is all I said. I just said, I'm praying this morning for you. And it felt like the Lord wanted me to leave you some money. I don't know if you need it, but I know that God loves you. And I know he cares about you. And I want, I know that he wants you to know that he's real. And I left a little verse and then I'm, I'm leaving. So I put it down, put the money in there, just leave it, grab my stuff. And I'm walking down the hall and I guess she had seen me leave. Maybe she was waiting to clean my room. And so I'm probably 30 yards down the way. All of a sudden I hear screaming and I, I like turn around and I see this like 70 year old Sudanese lady coming out of the room. She's looking down the hall and she just says, thank you. Like she's yelling at the top of her lungs. Thank you, thank you, 
I don't know if she was a Christian. I don't know if she's a, I don't know anything about her. But I know that God wanted her to know that she was loved. Not about me. She doesn't know my name. But he wanted her to know that she's loved. And so we, we had these little cards made up. We want you to give these out throughout this whole study and hopefully throughout the whole life of our church. But all they say is this. On one side, they say something extra to show you God loves you. And the other side, it says, and so do we, Creekside Church. And we debated putting Creekside Church on there because, again, it's not about you. It's not about the church. It's about God. But the reality is if God is going to use what you do to speak into somebody's life and point them to him and they want to walk a little further, we want them to walk into a loving church family who cares about them. And so on the back side, we put, and so do we, Creekside Church. We printed out a thousand of them. I want you to take five. I want you to take 10. And in the weeks and the months ahead, I want you to bless people. I want you to leave a big tip. Don't leave no 5% tip and leave this card. All right? I want you to leave a tip that someone could only say, Jesus loves me. Right? Like, I, 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 I can't even believe that this prayer was answered. But I know that Jesus cares about me. And leave this, all right? Pay for someone's gas. Leave them the card. Pay for someone's Starbucks. Give them the card. Again, it's not about us. It's just a little moment where someone can reflect on who Christ is. Maybe you forget the card. Maybe you just buy Chick-fil-A one morning for your office. Little things that makes the world stop and say, wow, someone does love me. Someone does care about me. There's nothing special about the card. What's special is you being obedient to the Lord and pointing people to him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And I hope we just don't say that, Lord. I hope we really do. Lord, we read passages like we read today, Lord, and they're convicting, they're challenging. Sometimes we don't even know what to do. Lord, but I just pray that we would be a church that is obedient. That we would be a church who truly does have a desire to walk in your spirit, to walk with you, and to point others to you. To tell them just how good you really are. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your name, amen.